afternoon, ladies, gentlemen, and otherwise, and welcome to the Daily Brain Bleed. My name's Tucker. I and my name be Jeffrey. Now, hello, Jeff. Ahoy! So, um, what, what, uh, are you just trying to, like, get in touch with your heritage? Just like this vaguely, why would I... Did I just imply that you're descended from pirates? You told me this week we be talking of pirates. Well, that's true. That is true. And um, I was not informed that discussion of pirates necessitated code switching to, you know, (laughs) and just um, uh, channeling your pirate heritage to... uh, to this sort of affectation, I mean, had I known this, had this been conveyed to me beforehand, I, I would have done my best to speak with you into the manner in which you are obviously accustomed in these conversations. Well, don't that be a bit of egg on your face, mate. Uh, pirates don't eat eggs. They're superstitious. It's just the scurvy? No, that gives them scurvy. Eggs give you scurvy, yeah. I. I just made that up, but you know what? God bless. Well, <laughs> welcome to the Daily Brain Bleed. It is a monologue podcast where we take on different characters like pirates. Um, Tucker is going to do Sylvester the Cat now. Um, did Sylvester the Cat even ever have a voice? <laughs> was there even a cartoon there? Like, I thought it was just a I, comic th- strip. I'm pretty sure Sylvester had a, like a like a little lisp or something. I saw someone post a video of like Turkish Garfield. like like literally just the uh the bill murray movie with turkish dialogue overlaid and i have no idea if it was the legit thing or whatever i just like the idea in my head of garfield eating iskander and complaining like a kebab yeah there you go uh garfield wearing a fez oh beautiful yeah exactly yeah no um but we are I guess in this podcast today, we are going to be doing kind of a retrospective of the entirety of the Pirates franchise and its position in modern popular culture that is triggered mostly by our having seen the most recent Pirates film, Dead Men Tell No Tales. And to be completely transparent, we are talking about a series of films that has not received any updates or any new installments since 2017. We did not have a podcast in 2017, and so we could not talk about it then, but we can talk about it now. And it was brought to my attention because I recently rewatched um, the first one with my wife, and we just kind of started working our way through the series. And you, you get through the first three, and you're like, yeah, cool, this is good. And then you go, oh. And so we're going to talk about that that pivotal O oh a little bit that happens in the series. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No, um, I will say... There was a remarkable amount of restraint shown on the part of Disney executives for waiting five installments into the franchise to finally pull the Dead Men Tell No Tales subtitle. Like, they're all, they're, I mean, some of the earlier uh, installments, Curse of the Black Pearl, like, it was actually kind of a source of controversy, my understanding, within Disney to even give the first film a uh, subtitle because they were just not even sure whether the film would be successful enough to merit an entire franchise built around it. And ultimately the gamble paid off. So, uh, yeah. I remember when the first film came out 
And like, I think I saw it six times in theaters. And that was like, I, I knew people who had seen it like 10. Like when the first one came out, it was just this phenomenon. And I think that rode largely on the fact that you think in 2003, we didn't have as many of these large expanded universe IPs in the market in as much as we do today. Right. There were the big game games in town in the early 2000s. And man, we can do that kind of like uh, early Gen Z, late boomer nostalgia of, okay, so we had the Brian Singer X-Men movies, the Sam Raimi Raimi Spider-Man movies, the Lord (laughs) of the Rings trilogy, the early Harry Potter movies, um, Matrix, I guess, and uh, this. Yeah. And I think this brought a little bit um, darker isn't the right word, but a, a bit sterner a character maybe. Than some of the IPs that you were just listing? Oh, sure. Disney was incredibly... A lot of the executives were incredibly worried about um, whether they should even market this under the Disney brand. See, a lot of people forget this, but for the longest time... Disney has been a multinational uh, corporation for uh, decades now that has done more than just theme parks and animated films. Being a normal Hollywood studio, they have wanted to market big action movies and all sorts of different movies. The problem is you have the Disney brand name, which has a very specific image, a family-friendly image in the eyes of moviegoers. So, okay, if you want to do big action movies, how do you do that? For the longest time, Disney had Touchstone, which was their label that they would put a lot of uh, their big action movies under. For instance, remember the uh, Michael Bay movie Armageddon? vaguely the, the, the one with the asteroid strike oh yeah 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 right that was a, that was technically a disney movie huh. but it was released and and for the more um uh for the more indie fair they had miramax which they required acquired which was of course the harvey weinstein brothers first first thing but it was under that that they got a bunch of classic 90s indie movies like pulp fiction pulp fiction technically a disney movie at least oh, at the time that it was wow. released Yeah, but so the point is, the 2000s, there was kind of a shift in the sense that big blockbusters, big tentpoles of the sort that we were describing were more and more dominating the Hollywood landscape. And for that reason, I suppose the folks at Disney felt like they had to get more serious about attaching the Disney name brand to um, some action IP. And remember, this was well before the Marvel acquisition or the... Uh, Lucasfilm acquisition were uh, yeah, yeah. even thought of, so they had to make something in house, and so they went with making adapt an adaptation of one of their rides. And so let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff that Curse of the Black Pearl got right. And in some ways, we can just talk about the first three as a whole: the um, Gore Verbinski films. Gore Verbinski, yeah. Um, and so I think that they were serious in a way that. It's not like you were always waiting for the punchline. There were lots of moments and whole stretches of the film where you could just take everything happening at face value. And then Captain Jack would kind of do his little, you know, his little bits and bobs and whatnot. But on the whole, there was a very serious undercurrent to all the films. It goes back to what you see with a lot of the big 
uh, action blockbusters, especially the genre blockbusters that everyone goes back to, uh, it takes itself very uh, seriously. There's verisimilitude, like with Lord of the Rings, the original trilogy, or Star Wars, the original trilogy. Obviously, fantastic things were happening, but you got the sense that it made that it, oh, it, it's abiding by the laws of its own universe. These are things that you could see happening if you can yeah. accept that the fantastic elements are there. And it's why it's really it really surprised me. I read some of the. Uh, background stuff some of the production stuff and like interviews with the people who were making um the most recent one dead men tell no tales and they thought you know what we got we have to go back to the comedy of the first one we have (laughs) it's like they misremembered it as being some sort of like wacky hijinks sort of movie which to be clear was there but (sighs) go to tv tropes and look up flanderization and (laughs) That's what happened to this. I think that they put the emphasis on the wrong syllable and that they remembered the first film as a funny one with some serious moments instead of a serious film with some funny moments. Because for me, Captain Jack of the first three, most notably the first two, the third one gets a little out in the fringes a little bit, but the first two, he is almost Han Solo-esque in that he is like kind of this gruff, you know, very flirtatious guy, but he's not, it's never distasteful entirely it's never completely over the line they're very aware of where the line is and they tow it very delicately and i think that's what makes it enjoyable whereas by the you know dead men tell no tales he's like you know he's this unrecognizable shell of the first three films and see that's exactly the point you when you reference han solo what was han solo he was, at the end of the day, in the original Star Wars films, a supporting character. Luke Skywalker was the Luke Skywalker of those movies, and Will Turner was the Luke Skywalker of especially the first movie, progressively less so as the trilogy plays on, and then by the time the fourth and fifth ones come around. And the that increasing emphasis on Jack Sparrow, of course, other people have noted this, it kind of distorted how... Uh, people thought of the franchise, but if you actually go back and watch the first movie, it's very clear that he is just a supporting character, an important supporting character, but it's not about him. Like Mm -hmm. the third, like the third film, the longest, and this is entirely conjecture. I haven't gone through and measured, but in terms of how it feels sitting in the seat, the longest single shot, like thing that we focus on the most in the third film is the ship battle in the maelstrom where, uh, will marries Elizabeth. That Mm -hmm. is kind of the apex of the whole arc, really. And then him eventually, you know, becoming the captain, the flying Dutchman and whatnot. But like he's the protagonist and Elizabeth is the protagonist. It's not Jack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I hadn't put necessarily that together. But yeah, you're right. He was a supporting character. And the reason why they hired Johnny Depp back in uh, the lead up to the release of the film in 2003 to play this character is because Johnny Depp, though he had starred in movies before, he wasn't a hugely bankable actor and he was largely known as a character actor. He did a lot of weird movies, especially with Tim Burton, right? Ed Wood, really good movie. Go watch that if you haven't seen it. But, um, and so he had that kind of weird, um, energy that you could only get, at least at the time, if you weren't marrying yourself to being a Hollywood A-lister guy who can anchor these four quadrant blockbusters. <laughs> anchor. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what that's what this movie did, right? It tricked Hollywood for 
solid 10 years or so after the release of this first movie into thinking, oh man, we actually can do this with Johnny Depp. We can uh, make him into this huge actor. And the thing is, even though Johnny Depp was a movie star for arguably is a movie star in the sense that everyone knows him, he can't really open anything to huge blockbuster numbers that's not uh, either A, um, a Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which he's not coming back to anytime soon, or no. B, certain sorts of Tim Burton movies. And <laughs> of which I would argue I wish he wasn't really truly involved with, just personally. Well, I, Tim Burton, honestly, the, Tim Burton himself is kind of a tragedy in the sense that it's like, what's the last interesting Tim Burton movie you can think of? Tim Burton only holds relevance in that we have reverence for past work. But as, yeah, it's like, what what are you some even like recent Timber movies you can think of? He did the new Dumbo movie, which honestly I haven't seen, but nothing that I've seen or read of the movie leads me to believe it's anything I more mean, than just like generic. What was the the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory remake, which was nothing. Um, what yeah. was the one where Johnny Depp played a Native American character? Um, Are you talking about Lone Ranger? Because I'm pretty sure that wasn't Tim Burton, but in any event. It wasn't, but it was, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm thinking of tragic roles that Johnny Depp has had, I guess. (laughs) And that was definitely one of them. Right, right, right. Um, Um, It's funny because if you go back to, I I remember someone writing this article in like 2014 or 2015, they ran the numbers and they found, I forget the exact metric that they used even, but the point was that. Johnny Depp was at the time the most wildly overpaid actor in Hollywood in relation to guaranteed box office returns that a movie would get just because of his involvement. And it's very easy to remember that time. And obviously, again, he's kind of gone off a cliff recently due to some very serious um, private issues that... Full disclosure, we're not getting into on we this podcast. We are not experts at it. We've not read all the stuff about it. Like, yes, um, domestic abuse is obviously terrible. We're just saying that if we were to talk about this, it would be a whole podcast about that, and we are not nearly well-equipped enough to discuss it with the degree of sensitivity that I think it deserves. Yeah, so we'll we'll put that in the corner just briefly. The thing that I wanted to circle back around to, though, was the fact that the reason, in my opinion, at least, that people fixated on him and kind of wanted to do a bunch of stuff with him after Curse of the Black Pearl was because his performance in Curse of the Black Pearl was spot on fantastic. One of the best, like, really just deep character roles that I've seen in a while. Like, his personalization of that character was so flawless. He got nominated for an Oscar for that. Like, this is not even a role that, you know, people would even consider, you know, in any generic action movie. Oh, yeah, we're definitely going to give an Oscar nomination to this guy. But yes, absolutely. In the context of 2003, when that movie came out, it, it set the world on fire. Yeah. And so, you know, to give that credit for what it does right, that was really, 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 really good. And then, you know, they people took that and tried to run with it in a direction that was inorganic and it didn't really work out for them. But... That's why my theory is that if after At World's End, because that's before they changed directors from the original three, if the IP had just fallen off a cliff, no one was allowed to touch it anymore, and we just had the original three movies, I think it would be remembered in much higher regard than it is today. Because now we've had at this point two complete flops. 
mm-hmm. right? Because I didn't even know there were five of them. I thought there were four prior to the recording of this podcast. And I've been informed there are five. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, uh, the one with uh, Blackbeard. What was the name of it? I, I, I like. I just told you about it. I'm forgetting the name of it off the top of my on head. On Stranger Tides, 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Real great. Uh, I, I actually remember seeing that in theaters. It, it was not good. Um, yeah. No, uh, so, yeah, I didn't actually, again, I hadn't seen the most recent one until just a couple days ago. And honestly, I feel like my opinion of it might be slightly higher than yours. Like it was a waste of time. It was a waste of money on all involved. It felt more than anything like one giant contractual obligation. But at the same time, you know, there were a few inventive bits here and there. I'd be like the part where they literally steal the whole bank, the part where you have the rotating um, uh, guillotine gag and, I'm not going to lie. It was the dumbest thing in the world. But when they brought they wheeled out uh, Paul McCartney to show up as Johnny Depp's uncle, like that was entirely unnecessary. But I'd be lying if the bit where he says a dumb joke and then you hear the guy in the back of the room just like laughing, like one guy (laughs) laughing out of nowhere. That was kind of funny. Uh, It it works on a lot of levels that are not a Pirates of the Caribbean film. It works intermittently and yeah, if from the perspective of someone who doesn't understand really what they're trying to be doing. Um, no, obviously they were clearly trying to set up new characters that could anchor <laughs> the franchise Arr. going forward had there been demand for more sequels. But to the extent that we've even heard of a theoretical six Pirates of the Caribbean movie at all in the past three or four years, it's been in the context of like a total reboot with bringing like Margot Robbie or Karen Gillan to be the lead for a new one. So, well, and here's my, here's, here's why I get pusty about it. Okay. So first of all, when, um, at world's end, and this is, this is by no means a scientific metric. This is just kind of something I read in passing and it makes a lot of sense after at world's end. And that came out in 2007. This was the third film, still Gore Verbinski. The um, archive of our own AO3 fan fiction stuff about Pirates of the Caribbean absolutely exploded. They had succeeded in creating a world and a mythos that people liked so much they wanted to continue spending more time in and diving into. And say what you will about IPs that have done this, other notables being like Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, etc., After the third movie, people were super willing to buy into the extended world of pirates. And I'm mad that we don't get that because in passing during the first three films, they had obviously written the world to be enormous. Like it had this almost Iliad-esque ancient Greek kind of feel to it. And so we don't get to have that realized because we had greedy studio execs that wanted to milk Johnny Depp's name for some money. And so I'm just mad about it. Right. And see, it's not even they didn't even like build on there being an extended world. Like so many of the movies, like so many of the plot points are exactly the same. How many cursed pirate crews have we seen now? We have the one from the (laughs) first one. They were skeletons. And then in the other ones, they were fish creatures. And now in the most recent one. Can, can we describe the aesthetic for a minute of Javier Bardem's cursed crew? What what was like they're, they're zombies, but like they're 
it's they were again they're trying to do some sort of like undead vibe but they never really i think got past the concept section session well i mean his character and the way he always constantly appeared to be underwater was actually a really neat bit of cgi it was a neat bit of cgi but what was what got me was that they undercut it so much of the time by okay so you have what could theoretically be menacing designs for the characters but oftentimes they're just standing out in broad daylight with nothing like they don't bring any sort of like menace to that it's like they're just kind of weirdly standing out in like situations where it feels like there should be more menace going on but again they're just like yeah. on the caribbean sea doing whatever um and hey javier pardem is pulls a good performance here can't say that you know he put uh, a good polish on a turd that was the script he oh got yeah. oh yeah definitely but at the same time um he he's he was not phoning it in in the same way that johnny depp was let me no no <laughs> yeah. no, no not at all absolutely um well and i mean then what i mean he goes on and does or was skyfall before this skyfall was just before this. just before this yeah, yeah. And his, his performance and that was great as well he, mm-hmm. he makes a good villain a lot of people hate skyfall you know that whoa, whoa 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 hang on my favorite daniel craig bond film skyfall right no oh shit i was thinking of the one with uh christoph waltz specter yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't like Spectre. Spectre sucks. Yeah. So I, 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 the reason I'm confusing Christoph Waltz and Javier Bardem in my head is because Christoph Waltz was originally the guy who was supposed to be playing the bad guy in this movie, but he eventually dropped the role. And Javier Bardem, who is married to Penelope Cruz, who was in the fourth one, said, yeah, you know, you know, my wife did it. So I might as well do the one myself. Do you want to know something dumb? What's that? So Dead Men Tell No Tales grossed $794 million at the box. Mm-hmm. Do you want to, without looking at my computer, do you think it overgrossed or undergrossed the original Black Pearl film? I would guess overgrossed. Yep, by $100 million. Well, I but see, that's a, like that makes sense in this, given that the global box office has grown so much since Well, and it was 14 years after and was part of a long franchise, so that, it's fair, but... Mm-hmm. On principle, it makes me mad. It's a worse movie. Right, right. So, I mean, is there anything else you want to really say about the evolution of the Pirates franchise and how we got to this point? I'm just mad that we killed it. Like, like I said, leaving out of the third one, we, I mean, you also had the the introduction of the multinational pirates and like the pirate lords and you get into all this deep lore and it was just, it was so good in such a fun way. And I'm just... I'm, I'm riding that nostalgia wave. Pardon the pun wave. Arr. But yeah, well, that's, that's all I got. Hey, be, be, be careful. We can't say that the franchise is dead because I, I, I would bet money that we are going to get either released within the next five years or in serious development or production within the five next five years. Another kind of continuation on the uh, pirates thing. You know what I think the attraction of this franchise to a lot of filmmakers is just in kind of like a film nerd uh, brain kind of perspective. It's in the same way that a lot of filmmakers have reverence for, um, for the Western genre and because of it's what they grew up on. And a lot of them feel like, okay, I got to make one good Western movie. I think a lot of filmmakers like the, uh, craft that's on display when you actually make a good film set at sea because it's very, very hard yeah, to sure. film at sea and it's one way to kind of like prove yourself as a good filmmaker. Uh, like 
So, you know, uh, the original Ben-Hur with uh, Charlton Heston, actually there was an earlier Ben-Hur, but besides the chariot race, everyone, the thing that everyone remembers from that movie is the sea battle. So that's, that's just it. You know, as long as there are guys who want the challenge of filming at sea, I think there's going to be someone who will come up to Disney with another pitch for another movie, you know? Aye, there's always got to be a salty dog to show these landlubbers how it's done. I'm, I'm done with my character work for the day. I, it's over. It's it's morphing into Mr. Krabs slowly. Sponge boy me, Bob. <laughs> Brown on the pod. Please, Clancy Brown, if you're listening to this. We'll do anything. We will... Anything. Anything. Morally reprehensible things. Of course. Uh, Moving on. So let's let's talk about something else, please. So there is another film that we both saw this past week, and we were talking about um, Oscar drama uh, a couple a couple episodes back. Who's Oscar and why is there drama about him? (laughs) Um, No, but this is a film that is widely considered to be a front runner for the upcoming Oscar season. And not only that, this film appears to be, uh, what caused like, obviously the film hadn't been released at the time, but the work of this director led Disney, um, by way of Marvel studios to give her carte blanche to the extent that is possible in the Marvel system to do the Eternals and apparently a way that she wanted to do it. And I am of course talking about, Chloe Jaws, Nomadland. Uh, a lot of huge plaudits for this film thus far, and for that reason, I wanted to see what the fuss was about. Do you have any thoughts? Well, so my first thing that I texted you immediately upon finishing the film was that it was utterly depressing <laughs> in a lot of ways. And, you know, that's obviously like a vast oversimplification, but like because of some of the subject matter that you're dealing with in a film like this, it was really heavy and there was actually literally a, a, a point in the film where I paused it for a minute and just really grappled with my mortality. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was really just sitting there thinking like, man, what when I, man, I'm going to die, huh? Like that's, <laughs> that's where I was. Right. Let, let's recap the film. The film stars uh, Francis McDormand as a woman who had lived in rural Nevada for many years, but eventually the town went under because I believe it was a mine in the area. Yeah. Uh, The mine, there was no demand for it anymore. So the mine closed. So she decided to adopt a lifestyle, a nomadic lifestyle in the sense that, you know, she bought herself. It wasn't technically an RV, was it? It No, it was like a big white panel van. Right. Um, and decided to just start, touring the country, uh, doing odd jobs here and there, but just living a lifestyle that was uh, not attached to any one area. And she, uh, to the extent that she has friends, it, it they are the people who are also in this nomadic lifestyle going from one area to another. And it grapples on uh, putting aside the micro level of the drama of her life, but on a macro level kind of, the social and economic disruption that happened as a result of the financial collapse in 2008 and 2009, the great Mm -hmm. recession. And the fact that we as a country have not going into the coronavirus epidemic, we never really got over that hangover. We never fully got out of that. And which is why I think even though it is a story that takes place, 
maybe five, ten years ago, it's still one that resonates today. It, it feels very present, especially the featuring of Amazon as an entity, right. like by name, very specifically. Right. And it's funny. I was reading about Chloe Zhao, and it's that uh, she had this deal in 2018 to make this movie for Amazon Studios. And <laughs> you, you don't see a lot of reporting on that project going anywhere uh, recently. And I was undecided. Does it portray Amazon in like a substantially negative light in this movie? She works in one of the uh, centers for Amazon, or is it just bleak, but no more bleak than everything else going on? I think the second one you said about it being bleak, but no more bleak is how it is portrayed. But that is the most favorable way that you could portray an Amazon distribution center, right. given what we know about the goings ons inside sure. of those places. Watching this movie, it makes me think it's like, wow, from the perspective, from the perspective of writers in the 1980s and nineties and such, we are really living the cyberpunk future, but just without the cool parts. You know, we don't get the androids or the off-world colonies or the flying cars, but we do get the totally atomized society where massive techno corporations run everything, <laughs> you know. Can we at least have a flying car in compensation? Uh, they were talking about having a flying car in the movie, I think, but, you know, they just get the regular old car where they build their whole life in. In the van. Right. Um, but yeah, just assessing the film as it is... Um, I think Francis McNorman gives a great performance. I think everyone featured in the movie gives a great performance. And some of the vistas of the West out there, the Rocky Mountains and such, Ooh, are yes. beautiful. You can obviously see why a studio would look at a director like Jow, Jaw rather, and um, think, man, this is someone we want to give a blockbuster to, a big epic to, because even though it's about relatively limited subject matter, the life of one woman just going from town to town, it really does feel sweeping in a way that uh, some sort of epic Western or similar such movie might feel. And I think just because it's almost like a token thing for me to talk about scoring because I have music degrees, woo. But like the, the scoring for this is first of all, very sparse, right? There are, you have long stretches of unscored film, which is fine. Like I, I thought the opening was a little uncomfortable, frankly, in duration just because they really don't ever break. They never really give us like a true exposition in so many words. We're just kind of there and mm -hmm. stuff's happening. And eventually you settle into that, but it's a little weird initially, especially the scene with her urinating by the side of the road. It's just a little, right. just a little weird to start off with, but it's very basic as well in that it's, you know, it's piano, it's strings. The harmonic language is very simple. And so it creates kind of this, Americana is kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And just the way, the way that it portrays that with its simplicity and its sparseness is very, um, I think it contributes a lot to what you're saying about this sense of scale. Um, yeah, sure. I wouldn't be surprised if McDormand wins an Oscar for being in this movie, which is funny because it reminds me in a lot of ways, not so much in terms of the plot, but in the ways that it helps make you think in a more unusual way about like the Midwest and the West. But, um, the first movie she won an Oscar for, which was Fargo. Right. Oh. Um, have you seen Fargo? I know you've seen the TV show. <clears throat> Massive fan of the TV show. Love it. I've seen all the seasons. 
I've never seen the original source material. You should see the original source material. I, I actually like it a, a lot better than the TV show. Um, You've made this known yeah, to I've me. Yeah, i made this known, and I'm 50-50 as to whether I want to jump in with my axe to grind about the TV show, but actually I'll We will on. talk about that in another episode. We'll talk about it in another <laughs> episode. Um, no, uh, but yeah, so... Can I make a brief aside? Sure. Something, so I'm, I'm not sure what exactly... Like, I, I get it, but I was frustrated by our main character's complete lack of ability to connect to, to anything. And mm-hmm. I believe that's a frustration we're supposed to feel because, like, other than the van itself, she has lots of people reach out to her and be like, hey, we want you to come be a part of what we're doing. Like her sister and then uh, the other the gentleman that she meets several times. I forget the character's name, um, but she has people that want her and she is well liked by plenty of people, but she continually chooses this weird solitude because she just never dealt with the previous death of, you know, her entire old life along with her husband. And I don't know, like I, I don't, I didn't want it to be like Hallmark in that we see her just say, Oh yes, I'll love you. I'll come live with you and be like, obviously we're not going to get that. But I, I don't know. I, I really was craving some form of, growth or resolution in some way that I feel like I didn't get. And the thing about her specific life, and to be clear, I understand this to be based to some degree on a nonfiction book about the lifestyle, the nomadic lifestyle. So I don't know to what degree the story of this woman is literally adapted from someone's life or if she's a composite character, or whatever the case may be. But for the first two thirds ish, or more of the movie, it kind of builds the portrait that she is not significantly different than anyone else living this lifestyle in the sense that um, though some people are attracted to the idea of just traveling around the country in their car or their RV or whatever the case may be because they want that sense of adventure, it's very much the um, result of the current material economic conditions in our country, which uproot so many people, which lead them to believe that, you know what, maybe th- this makes more financial sense for me to not have a home and to just go around in the country living in my car and everything. And that's that's a bleak story, but that's an interesting story if you commit to it. And I honestly thought it undercut it a bit when, so she she has some bills to, that she needs to pay to repair her car, right? Yeah. And so she reaches out to her sister and eventually goes and lives with and, and visits her in her comfortable middle to upper middle class suburban home. And her sister loans her this money. And when she promises to pay back and it makes you think, well, wait a minute, she could have been living in a comfortable middle to upper middle class life, or at least had, you know, the starter kit necessary to, to build one this whole time. She's just, well, slumming it by um, doing this. And I don't mean to, you know, cast judgment on the character or anything, but I think it kind of undercuts the greater social message when your whole focus on the character, I mean, your whole focus on the phenomenon is through the lens of a character who is doing it for radically different reasons than other people. It, it causes her primary motive instead of out of to be like a financial issue, which is what we think it is. Like you said, for the first two thirds of the film Mm -hmm. to being one of, Oh, well it's about grief Mm -hmm. and loss and not processing that for like 
30 years. Sure. And I just, I think that's a very different shadow that it casts. It doesn't significantly alter the course of the film, but it just, I don't know. I feel like it casts it in a different light that Mm. I was not overly fond of. Mm. And I think it might hit a lot of people our age a little, make them feel a little uncomfortable because I know so many people our age who will say something like, I never want to be married. I never want to have kids. I never want to be tied down to one place. I just want to travel my whole life. And this movie kind of feels like the dark realization of such a, such a wish, right? It's like you, the monkey paw, one of the fingers curls up (laughs) and there you go. That's what this is. And I think like, depressingly the future given the current economic and social conditions in our country is probably going to lead to more and more people living, maybe not specifically the sort of life led by the character in the movie, but just one of fundamental dislocation from any one community or way of life and just being wandering around the country and maybe even the world. Yeah. And which is depressing to think about, but I think that's probably the point. They want to raise awareness uh, of this sort of thing. And yeah. Sure. Um, Do we want to talk at all about the kind of cult of personality gentleman character that's introduced um, who runs kind of like this gathering of people of the nomadic lifestyle? Do you Um, have thoughts? uh, I just, I don't know. I, his characterization was very interesting to me because he seemed like a weird, not to reference the dead, but like an inversion of Rush Limbaugh in certain ways. Like, well, all about just taking care of people and guiding them to, you know, kind of a peaceful end game. Well, it, it almost kind of starts down the path of maybe giving you the impression that there's a bit of a culty vibe with this, but they ultimately don't. Yeah. They steer away from it entirely. They don't steer. And I think maybe part of that is that depressingly enough, say what you will about a cult, but it is a community, right? And these, (laughs) when you're here, your family, it's a cult. And these people ultimately don't have any real community uh, of any sort. Right. He's just ultimately a guy who you get the sense he might be kind of sort of weird, but at the same time, he's just, given his spiel about what he thinks is the best way to survive in modern America, which may or may not be right. But I mean, I don't think there's any reason to believe he's talking in bad faith or no, has any no, not at all. exploitative aims or anything. But um, I think specifically within that community, a lot of the people are very depicted as being elder, like seniors, citizens, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And it brought up um, kind of, one of the one of those anecdotes that gets told around the fire is this guy who worked for a company for 40 years, showed up, punched his time clock, never took time off, that kind of stuff. Liver failed and he had bought himself this nice brand new sailboat for when he retired so he could finally have this thing in life he enjoyed. And he died mm-hmm. with the sailboat still sitting in the driveway. And so what what the, the woman telling the tale, her point was, I don't want to die with my sailboat in the driveway. Sure. And I think there was a lot of commentary there about nine to five culture Mm -hmm. and you know, how, you know, realistically a five day work week, you know, that's, that's a lot of time you're devoting to something. You also get the sense that that's sort of a cope, right? In that earlier in the film, when it's kind of showing the Francis Norman character, I forget her name off the top of my head. Fern. Fern, right. Um, who, you know, she's interacting with the other people she works with at the distribution center. And, one of her closest 
friends there to the extent that you can say she has friends, but the person that she talks with, she's an old lady, right? She's an old lady, yeah. 60s, 70s, who has to be working in this Amazon distribution center. And as you say, a lot of people choosing to live this lifestyle are old. And that was the really depressing part of the financial collapse for a lot of people. It's that all of these people had spent decades uh, doing what they were thought they were supposed to do in the American capitalist system, which was uh, live the nine to five life on the presumption that at the end of it, when you come to retirement, you could retire and just, you know, have fun and all that sort of thing. You could live out your retirement in peace, but that's just not the case for a lot of people. So when she says, oh yeah, I'm, I'm traveling around the country, I'm uh, doing what I want to do, you kind of think, well, is this some way of just justifying what you had to do? You see what I mean? Yeah. And there, there are people who come at it from different angles as well. Like I chose the van life because my social security was like 500 and some dollars a month mm-hmm. and that wouldn't cover rent for me anywhere. And mm-hmm. so I made the decision to live in a van because it's what my checks would allow me to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that that gets into another level of discourse that is like, you know, what what is the relationship of senior citizens to retirement age and social security and what is that supposed to look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's discourse there. The one other part of that that I found that they were trying to tell a story with was the um, the female character who is out on the road and she has been diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer. They gave mm-hmm. her seven to ten months to live. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm not going to die in a hospital. I have no interest in it. I bought uh, the book by what was it Dr. Kevorkian right. about com- about committing suicide. And I'm going to live my life the best way I can until it's not sustainable. And then I'm just going to leave. I, I said a couple episodes back when we were talking about the, the five, the five bloods, um, there was the monologue from Delroy Lindo, where he's just looking at the screen going, you know, giving his spiel. And it was one of those moments of just sheer performance that, you know, if you're just like, on your phone while watching your movie, you put your phone down and you watch because there's something magnetic. And there's something I think similar going on with that woman giving her monologue about how she wanted to go to Alaska because she had so many great memories there and talking about all the wildlife that she saw that I thought was in its own simple but powerful way, just as magnetic. And I thought there are some great performances in this movie. There are some great performances is in this movie because they're so understated. They're so, rural middle America and the way that, you know, you, you kind of understand if you live in a place like where we're from. So some of the details are different because we're talking about we're, we're from Appalachia and these are people from the, around the Rockies and such, but take the point. There's a kindredness of spirit for sure. And mm-hmm. I, it, it was after that scene that I had to pause the movie briefly because she was talking about feeling okay with death, making kind of this, you know, it's going to happen to me and it's okay. Cause I feel like I've done enough. I feel like I've had enough mm. and I don't know it like it, it's kind of a much more intellectual, intellectual rehashing of the YOLO ideology, <laughs> but it's like, you know, we're on earth for 70 years. You know, you get a whole bunch more if you do a bunch of weird medical stuff to yourself, but like, you know, we're, we're on earth for a limited amount of time and someday you are not going to be anymore. And mm. when you hit that point, are you going to be satisfied with what you've done up to that point. And that's that's heavy in a film that can really make you contemplate that so deeply <laughs> that you're mm. like, 
you know, you need to take a sec. You know, I, I think that that speaks volumes to what this what this movie does. I'm reminded on you just you're talking about this reminds me weirdly, but I think fittingly of the uh, the Atastupa scene from um, Midsummer, where the elderly folks just jump off yeah. the cliff. Right. Which, of course, is shocking and terrifying. But. On some level, you get the sense that they've accepted that you know this has to happen. This is um, they've lived their life. Uh, well, and it's it's not from nowhere. You know, it's it's very well documented in Nordic culture, mm-hmm. surely. So I mean, cultures all over the world, right? Yeah. Where it, it sometimes it was human sacrifice, but oftentimes it was just the euphemism of uh, you know the old person saying, "Yeah, I'm going out for a walk," with everyone knowing they're not coming back. But uh, yeah, it, it in a weird way. This idea that we should extend life as much as possible, regardless of quality, right, is a very recent phenomenon in uh, the modern world. So it, it's and I think it's one as unfortunately, I think you're going to see material conditions start to slip in away in the way that this movie shows, I think, what you know are the beginning stages of it. I think it's one that's also kind of going to go away. She says she doesn't want to li- uh, spend the rest of her days, you know, in a hospital, right, in this movie. On some level, you probably also have to imagine that she doesn't want to rack up the medical bills. or And then leave co- them to next of kin. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's quite a potent and wide array of commentary for a relatively short film, frankly, hour 45, sure. hour 50, about a woman living in a van. It was much less of a slog than Dead Men Tell No Tales. <laughs> and considering the difference in subject matter, that's quite quite telling. No, um, honestly, yeah. I, when you look at some of the sweeping vistas in this movie, it, it felt more epic than the giant multi-hundred million dollar pirate movie sure, that they had to sure. film in Australia because of the tax incentives. It, it definitely set off my, uh, my wanderlust in that I've been stuck inside for a calendar year now and I don't go anywhere. And I, man, love to put some rubber on the road and get out there to Yosemite and see a, a rock. <laughs> a rock would be great. That would be great. Um, scene from, well, that from was... SpongeBob where it's like, it's not a boulder. <laughs> it's a it's rock. A rock. <laughs> um, well, that, that was, that was really heavy. What's, what's one good thing that's happened in the last week of your life, Tucker? <sighs> Saw the trail. This isn't good, but it's funny. Um, <laughs> And it's not even really about my life. Um, saw the trailer for Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead that's going to come up on Netflix in uh, May. And it looks like the the perfect sort of dumb, dumb movie. To be clear, a lot of people don't like Zack Snyder. A lot of people love him. I appreciate him for what he is. And the plot of this movie, it's, it's so dumb. But I, I have to say it. It's okay. So there's a zombie apocalypse occurring. Las Vegas has been entirely overrun so like dave patista has to lead a strike team in to do a heist to recover a um a treasure hidden under las vegas and there's a ticking time bomb element because they know the government's about to to drop a nuclear bomb on las vegas to contain it and uh this is just like an excuse for a bunch of ridiculous action scenes and the only complaint that i have from watching the trailer is the makeup I think was a little underwhelming because when you do a zombie movie, you can go a lot of different directions. You can make them look disgusting and rotting and you know, the, the flesh just 
entirely decrepit or you can make him look diseased, you know, and kind of a 28 days later vibe. These just literally look like a bunch of random extras with some like blood <laughs> on them. And it's like for as much as the movie seems to be expending on the explosions, you can imagine that they can do this. I don't know. This is probably just my autism flaring up and I can say this because I do have, um, no. Uh, so don't try to cancel me for saying that. Um, so yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. I, uh, I think mine would be, I watched uh, Moonraker, the old James Bond film mm. uh, last weekend. And it was just spectacularly rough. <laughs> in all the best ways. It was just bad, but in a good way. I love that we had that period of time in the late 70s where Star Wars was such a hit that everyone wanted to make a Star Wars ripoff, even the James Bond people. <laughs> it, it's it's weird when you can say, oh, well, we did space and then Phantom Menace did space better. <laughs> like, that's a rough, that's a rough claim for you. <laughs> right, right, right. But whatever, you know. I, I, I think I'm done bleeding. <laughs> I have no more blood left to give. I have more blood, but I'm going to save it for another day. All right, folks. My name's Tucker. My name's Jeff. And this is The Daily Brain Bleed. Have a good week. Bye.